Welcome back to the 158th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including can Biden really convince people that Bidenomics is a good thing? Jeannie Thomas and other conservatives have been playing around with the court, and of course there's more controversy about it, and Arkansas Governor Sanders, or sorry, Huckabee Sanders, has been moving in a direction that some people don't necessarily love in her state. And, of course, we will end today with The Daily Delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. How can we make politics about people again? I think I've asked a similar question to this one before, but how, how can we do it? How can we get past this era where politics is used to progress someone's career it's able to make them more influential. It's able to give them power. How do we make politics about the people once again? Because that's exactly what it should be. It should be the noblest among us, if that is even a category that we could use anymore, going there and trying to serve the people that have put them into that office. You know, I'm, maybe I'm a little idealistic. Maybe I'm a little naive, of course, but I hope we can return to it someday. And I feel like there is a path forward. We just have to push hard enough. All right, so let's jump to our first story that comes from the Daily Caller. Biden can't gaslight struggling Americans to think his economy is good. So, of course, of course, if you live in America right now, you have heard all the different narratives about inflation, about how certain people are struggling, about the high credit card debt. And if you listen to one side, you also hear about, well, people don't actually recognize what good Bidenomics is doing for them. And there are a few pieces of that argument that could, that could, and I say could, actually be you know, viable. Okay, there are lots of new green infrastructure deals coming through, and there's lots of new spending to protect you know, American industry, to try to reshore some jobs, and we've seen lots of job growth. But the counter-narrative to all of those also holds true. The more we spend, the higher inflation is going to be because we're injecting more money into the economy. When these job growth numbers come out, remember they're in reference. If you look at them compared to the COVID years, of course they're going to be up because COVID shut things down. So all the sides have their talking points. And the Daily Caller obviously comes from their point of view as well. But they actually point something out, which is Biden put out his first campaign ad, and it is about Bidenomics to some degree. So let's see what they have to say about this first. I guess at this point you could say it's a primary, not a primary election campaign ad. It's more of a general because he really thinks he's shoring it up. But, you know, we could we could say that, oh, well, technically it's a primary because it is during a Democratic primary, even though they're not hosting one. It's in the time that would normally be a primary. Quote, the 2024 Joe Biden presidential campaign, which has thus far been essentially non-existent, is now out with a crisp 30-second TV ad titled Got to Work. The ad, which targeted local Michigan broadcasters and other national battleground states during the week's NFL season opener, totes that the 46th president's first term track record on such economic issues as fixing supply chains and making us more energy independent. The fact that this is the subject of Biden's first major post-Labor Day advertising barrage confirms that was already fairly obvious. 
confirms what was already fairly obvious. The president and his team intend to make so-called Bidenomics the focal point of their re-election campaign messaging. There is just one glaring problem. It is all a lie. Biden can try to gaslight the American people and retcon the past few years to his heart's content, but the evidence is simply overwhelming. The ruse will not work, end quote. And, you know, maybe maybe that's true. I think there's been lots of strong messaging from the RNC and from Fox News that has definitely implied that Biden's economy isn't as good as he wants to pretend it is. And I also do believe that Biden's trying to make a very strategic move here, which is turn one of his greatest weaknesses, turn one of the things that he's been attacked on this entire time back into his favor. Instead of being circ- instead of succumbing to all the different attacks on his economic policy, to all the different programs that he's putting in place, to all the hard times that people are having and they're blaming him for it. Instead of succumbing to all that, no, he's trying to pivot. He's trying to turn it on its head. He is trying to say, no, 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 no. You just don't realize how good something is. Now, that can work sometimes, but also it could come off as patronizing because people who already are a little bit predisposed to not trust politicians or not trust Biden are going to say, and here we go again. Here he is trying to twist the story. Here he is being a used car salesman saying, no, 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 that broken tailpipe, it's actually a good thing because it's going to cost you less money when you have to remove it. Or, you know, that uh, that broken glass on the, on the side, no, it's actually a good thing because it lets a little ventilation in your car. Some people who don't already trust him are going to hear this and be like, of course he's trying to spin it. But there is a part of the population that could probably be open to his message. So I think the Daily Caller, while they're calling out and saying it's a lie and trying to persuade the people who might be persuaded by that message that know he's actually lying to you, I think they're going about it in a very interesting way. And they're not actually looking at the more political aspect, the looking at the how and why they're doing it rather than the, oh, no, it's just a lie. Because let's be clear, whether it's a lie or not, sometimes political messaging gets through to people. And sometimes just stating these facts that he's trying to make us more energy independent, is fixing supply chains, that can resonate with people on an emotional level beyond the facts of the case. So while what the Daily Caller is doing is admirable and they're trying to give facts, if they really want to push back against it, you probably need a quick snappy ad that calls it out and points everything out very quickly rather than a long article. But I don't think the Daily Caller is in the business of influencing politics that directly. They're just trying to call out, or this author is trying to call out, what he is seeing. So Binomics is all about the relieving the American people, getting rid of the junk fees, making us more energy independent, bringing back jobs. So what kind of relief is Biden saying he's bringing, and what does the actual relief look like? Because the Daily Caller wants to call this out. Quote, inflation has since cooled down a bit, but is still running considerably hotter than the Federal Reserve's stipulated 2% target. Accordingly, Fed Chair Jerome Powell has not ruled out still further increasing interest rates at a time when mortgage payments are already catastrophically high. For the median American family buying a home, mortgage payments doubled from roughly 14% a month to, wow, okay, hold on, let me let me redo that, from 14% of monthly household income in 2022 to nearly 29% in June 2023. That is the highest that particular metric has been in nearly four decades. 
Meanwhile, Saudi Arabia and Russia have announced more oil production cuts through the end of 2023. So there are, is a little bit more to the quote, but that's another interesting one. I think Saudi Arabia and Russia, they, they want Biden out. They're trying to pinch him politically. You saw it before the midterms when he came asking them, hey, can you actually not cut production? And he had to release a little bit more of the strategic oil preserves. So or reserves. So I really think that uh, this is some outer state warfare or influence trying to make it harder for Biden going into the next election. And I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just stating that I think that it is happening and we'll see what kind of influence it has going forward. Uh, it's pro- it actually it could be a little scary if an outside nation just by deciding how much oil they're going to send to the United States could directly influence a presidential election. But we've seen it before. You know, geopolitics is obviously very complex, and certain nations release information or they do certain things in order to maybe make a president's life harder if they don't necessarily like the current administration in there. So. You know, we'll see how this plays out. If things get really tight going into 2024, it may come back to bite Biden in the butt. And also, he's had a very harsh rhetoric towards Saudi Arabia. So you're not it's probably not surprising that they're trying to, you know, lambast him a little bit. So is the relief actually working? Is this Bidenomics actually causing relief for a lot of people? And while all of these metrics do suggest that things are not easier for people under Bidenomics. There's also the idea of, hey, there are a few more jobs now. So even if things are going up, people aren't unemployed. They're able to go out and get a job, maybe even two jobs, and maybe pay some of these things off. But then you have to remember that the job statistics they give is in recovery from COVID. So are they really creating new high-value jobs, or are they just bringing back old jobs that were canceled or kind of thrown underneath the rug during COVID. That's a serious question that we need to have as well. And also, to be honest, I don't know if a lot of people want manufacturing jobs. A lot of people in the middle America probably want manufacturing jobs, but this upcoming generation, I don't think they actually want to go work in a factory. They probably want a white-collar job. And the way to have more white-collar jobs here in America is to make it actually cheaper for employees to hire people who are educated here rather than other countries when it comes to like doing data analysis or doing building different computer models. You could probably outsource a lot of that to consulting firms or just firms or people in other countries who are also well-educated because it could be remote and things like that. So maybe there's a program that the government could do in that case, but then again, I don't think the government should really get that involved. So I think Biden's in a really, really hard pinch here. Now, from a, a more liberal progressive point of view versus my more, hey, government hands-off point of view, there are lots of things that he could do, but they may have lots of negative influences on how we interact with other states. If we actually have preferential treatment for our own citizens, then guess what? Other states might do the exact same thing. It might limit the amount of consulting that the U.S. can do outside, U.S. companies can do outside of the United States, and therefore we actually may lose some of those jobs but gain back the other jobs that we were exporting to other countries. So it may actually be a net, not net negative or net plus, it's just a net zero. There, We might just you know shift the jobs to one sector of the economy. And this is what happens when the government gets so involved over time. If they put preferences or stipulations or even penalties in place, they're purposely shifting where the economy puts its resources. And when you do that, 
it can work, but then when you suddenly want to shift your priorities going forward, guess what? You're going to shift the economy again, and then all those great things that were created by that last program might have to go away. Then you have to find a house for all those other people that now you're, quote-unquote, abandoning because you're ending the certain stipend or a certain subsidy that you're giving to a particular industry that was actually helping them expand and bring on new people. So you see why not letting the government get involved is probably a good thing because then the market, in theory, can efficiently allocate its own resources and find the industries that are best suited for growth at this point. And then guess what? In the free market, people are going to say, oh, hey, there's this opportunity over here in this particular industry. Maybe I should tailor myself towards that. Not, oh, I should tailor myself towards a different industry because the government's subsidizing it. There are probably going to be jobs there. That's just, you know, that's just my opinion. That's why I think that getting too involved in the economics of a country from the government's point of view is dangerous. And that's why a lot of people are criticizing Bidenomics, because it is a very intentional shift. The people that are actually caring about this on a more fundamental principled level are looking at it and saying, you are forcing a shift in the economy. Now, if you were forcing a shift in the economy and it was helping the average day person, maybe you could still get elected. Maybe you could still go forward and because the everyday person doesn't necessarily care about the principles. They care about how they are directly affected in their everyday lives. But it doesn't seem to have done both. The principal people are hating on it because it, you're going against the principle, or at least the principle of having government be too involved in people's lives. And then the average day person isn't necessarily feeling the positive repercussions of these policies. So He's kind of losing on both fronts. Maybe he can spin it going forward. Maybe there are other things that he could do that people would absolutely love, like the child tax credit. I hear from a lot of progressives they love that. I've also heard news coverage from just average day people that they love that. It allowed them to send their kid off to a certain daycare or certain preschool so that they could work and actually pay off some of their bills. So maybe there are things going forward that Biden can do. I just find it a little hard to believe that he'll actually be able to 100% get them all done before 2024. All right, so that's enough on this one. We're going to go to a completely on the other side kind of topic, and this one comes from Rolling Stone. Ginny Thompson and conservative activists work together to exploit Citizens United ruling. So for those of you who do not remember Citizens United, in this article we'll talk about it, but I just want to highlight it before we go in because they kind of brush over it. Citizens United was a court case that went in front of the Supreme Court. And the question, the ultimate question at the end of the case was, is money political speech? Can people give a amount above a certain amount of money to a candidate in order to basically lobby them on certain issues. And let's be clear, they didn't make it that obvious, but if you give money to somebody and you're looking at it as an investment, from a business point of view, it seems pretty obvious, even, let's be clear, even if the governor or whoever's getting the money, the political actor, the politician, whatever, whoever's getting the money, they understand, okay, this person probably wants something for that money on a, maybe on a subconscious level, maybe in a just understanding how politics works. But even then, if you don't want to be that cynical and say, oh, yes, people understand the second they get money from somebody or a PAC or a union, whoever's donating, oh, I obviously have to give them a little bit of time a day. Think about it this way. If you want money for your next election, if you want to get reelected, you're probably going to go back to the same people that gave you money this time. So, 
if you piss them off in between the first time that you get their money and the next time that you need their money, they're probably not going to give you their money. So, you know, there's a little bit of, hey, I scratch your back, your scratch mine kind of deal. So Citizens United basically ensure that this can keep happening because they said, yes, yes, money is a form of speech. Giving your money to a particular candidate, a particular cause is a way for you to directly speak your mind and influence what goes on in the system. Rather than just going on Twitter or going out to the public square and trying to convince people, you can give money to help a politician or to help try to convince people, essentially. So, you know, it, it, it was a really tricky one. It, it kind of infused money back into the political system and made it completely mainstream. And the Supreme Court was derided from some people on both sides and was supported by some people on both sides. So it was a little bit back and forth. But Ginny Thomas, the wife of Clarence Thomas, and a different activist, Mr. Harlan Crow, uh, apparently they took advantage of this opportunity. Quote, as the Supreme Court prepared to decide the Citizens United case that designated money as political speech, Ginny Thomas, wife of Justice Clarence Thomas, along with the conservative activists, quickly and quietly filed to create exactly the type of nonprofit group that would benefit from this decision. Political reports... The after the ensuing years, according to Politico, Thomas worked closely, and this is Ginny, by the way, with the Federalist Society leader Leonardo Leo to build a conservative movement that would fuel changes to the judiciary and help overturn laws regarding abortion, affirmative action, and other issues important to the right wing. Ginny really wanted to build an organization and to be a movement leader, a source familiar with her thinking at the time told Politico. Leonard Leo was going to be the conduit of that, end quote. So if you can see here that that what they're trying to get at is, hey, Ginny had some idea of this case going a certain way beforehand, and they quickly filed a different form here or there in order to create a nonprofit and therefore benefit from the decision coming down the pike. And I, I don't, they didn't outright come and say it, but it, it feels like they're implying, ah, she had a little bit of insider information. I guess, think about it this way, if you're living with the justice, also, if you just know the makeup of the court and you are, you know, intimately aware as a lawyer yourself of how all these different lawyers that your husband works with thinks, you could also have the information ahead of time, in theory. You could say, well, I think it's going to go down this way, so I'm going to hedge my bets and start this nonprofit. So, that's, I'm going to kind of, I'm not dismissing that, but I'm, I'm saying it doesn't hold as much weight to me. The other thing, the thing that I do find interesting, though, is the quote at the end that's saying she wants to have an impact. She wants to be a movement leader. And they're not saying it's good or bad. They're just reporting. But I actually, I find that kind of admirable. No matter what side of the aisle you're on, whether I agree with the movement you're trying to create or not, the fact that you're willing to sacrifice part of your own time, effort, and money to support a vision of the nation that you have is admirable. The fact that you love our nation enough to be part of a movement that you believe will help our nation, at least that's what I think Ginny was doing. It doesn't explicitly say. But if your goal is admirable to help the nation, even if I don't agree with the policies, uh, that is something where I can respect you for it. The time and effort that you put in, the willingness you have to sacrifice from yourself, like I said, is it's something that sometimes we lack here in America. Sometimes we lack that long-term perspective. Sometimes we lack that will to be the political change, and I find it very admirable. So here's the background, because I mentioned Harlan Crow at the beginning. Here is the Crow background that Rolling Stone highlights. Quote, Crow 
provided the initial donation for Liberty Central, the group Thomas and Leo created. What was among the first of what Politico describes as a billion-dollar network of groups, most of which are registered as tax-exempt charities or social welfare, welfare organizations, Liberty Central's goal was to combat a number of Obama-era efforts, including health care reform. And also, when the group and its leadership became public, Thomas was forced to sever her ties with the group. But she immediately created a for-profit consulting business with a similar name, Liberty Consulting. Leo then used a previously dormant tax-exempt group, Judicial Education Project, to pay Thomas a similar amount of what Liberty Central had paid her. GEP, or I'm going to call it JEP from now on, would later submit a number of amicus briefs to the Supreme Court advocating for conservative causes. Although groups like JEP should mostly focus on charitable efforts, Politico reports that it is not clear what charitable services Thomas provided and whether she was paid for a, at a fair market value for her services or if she was qualified to provide those services. End quote. So this is what they're really getting at towards the end here. These are more of the, the clear accusations, which is they're funneling money around that, you know, they're creating a whole, whole bunch of different groups in order so that she can get paid for her influence or her willingness to actually go there and try to talk to some of the people on the court and all these different amicus briefs that all these different groups are filing. And they're asking, hey, is one, is she actually qualified to be doing this? And Two, is she getting paid properly for it? Or is she getting paid more than she's worth for it? And, you know, let's be clear. When you are the wife of a Supreme Court justice, your your value does go up a little bit. And I don't necessarily know exactly what she got paid. They don't even technically know exactly what she got paid. But, you know, that does, that status does add a little bit to your salary. And is she qualified? Well, considering she knows kind of what the inner workings of the Supreme Court are. And she, like I said earlier, has an understanding of all the different people that her husband serve with. I mean, you probably meet them all the time at dinners and you interact with them at different galas and things like that, maybe. But also there is the genuine question of, is she truly qualified to be running all these different types of organizations? Has she run a business before? Has she run a nonprofit before? And, you know, if she's getting overpaid, is it because of the, her position next to Clarence Thomas? I, you know, I don't want to honestly give too much air to these these claims because I feel as though it's part of a concerted attack to defame the Supreme Court. And a lot of them in the past have been, I don't want to say proven false, but they have been shown to be overblown, at least from the perspective of a few different people on both sides of the aisle that I've listened to in the past, except if you're Kyle Kalinske. Kyle Kalinske absolutely loves these stories, and he keeps putting them out there and trying to highlight them, and he really wants to show that the Supreme Court is not a institution that is above it all. They're, they're just in the mud like everybody else. It is a political institution. So, of course, there are comments from both sides. And I don't know if there was any wrongdoing here, but Rolling Stone's reporting on it, so I wanted to bring it to you. And also, the one thing I am frustrated with is they just bring up Crow. And let's be clear, Crow did give money. I'm not trying to say they weren't right to bring him up. But they just bring it up, and by saying Crow, they seem to lend credence to the idea that this was all a manipulation, because we know he just gives money to political causes that are on the right-hand side. 
maybe he genuinely cares about the future of his country and he's giving to these organizations and he's not just doing it to be a political crony. I think that's a little bit too cynical on some people's behalf, but maybe it's a little too naive on my behalf. That's also possible. All right, so I've talked about that one enough and you probably walked away from that like, wait, what did he say? What I'm saying is let the time elapse, let more things come out. It's admirable that she wanted to affect change in her country Maybe she had a little bit more influence because of her position as a Supreme Court wife. And maybe that means that she shouldn't necessarily be qualified or she isn't qualified to be doing exactly what she did. But once again, you got to respect that she was trying to positively influence her nation. And maybe she should step down and enjoy her older age a little bit more and just relax from now on, especially if this gets really politically hot. All right. So let's jump to just the news. This one is a this one's about the Arkansas governor. Actually, I'll just read the headline. Arkansas governor wants to launch a ban on vaccine mandates and she wants to put in some tax cuts. So, this is Huckabee Sanders. For those of you who don't know Huckabee Sanders, she was the press secretary there for Donald Trump for a little bit. She was hard hitting. She's kind of beloved by the old-fashioned RNC. She then went on to become governor of Arkansas. And, you know, there have been some ideas floated that she is a vice presidential candidate. I don't necessarily believe that one, even though Trump may go for a woman this time. I think she's too ingrained in uh, Arkansas government right now. I don't think that she's really the person that he should call on just because she's doing good things in her state, or at least her people think that she's doing good things in her state. So, but let's, you know, I got a little bit two in the weeds on that one. Basic overview, the left doesn't like her. She's doing things that the left doesn't like in her state. And the right kind of enjoys her presence because she's hard-hitting and she's doing lots of things on the state level that they enjoy. So, quote, Arkansas Governor Sanders is calling lawmakers into a special session beginning Monday to discuss tax cuts, COVID-19 vaccine mandates, and change some laws regarding public records. The governor's proposed tax plan would reduce the top income rate by to 4.4% as of January 1st. The top corporate tax rate would become 4.8%, a tax credit of up to 150 for individuals and up to 300 for married filers for 2023 is also included according to her new executive order. Sanders is also banning vaccine mandates for state employees, saying restrictions enacted in 2020 trampled our individual liberty. Back then, a handful of bureaucrats shut down our schools, our churches, our businesses, enforced masks on our kids, and tried to implement vaccine passports, Sanders says in a news conference. That will not happen again here in the state of Arkansas. So, you know, she's trying to limit the amount of taxes. Those are pretty straightforward proposals. I do like the idea of a tax credit rather than directly lowering the taxes because you can also, especially in the case where you make it more advantageous to have a married married clause in that tax code, maybe instead you do something like $350 for married filers and an extra $50 per child to encourage people to get married because that's a huge problem we're having here in America and then also encourage having children, which is another problem, you know, with declining birth rates and declining population that we have here in America. You know, maybe, maybe some people don't agree with that. I think that that would be a good idea. 
And also, I think it's really interesting the way that she's just straight up saying, we're not doing we're not doing this whole COVID thing again. She is preemptively cutting it off. She's saying, no, we're not going to do mass mandates. We're not going to do vaccines again. When you see a lot of worry about this new strain of COVID in some discussions in some places where they're actually forcing masks again or they're shutting down certain places, I, I've only seen one or two of those actual shutdowns, and normally they're temporary for like a week or something like that, so... It's not the end of the world, but she's preemptively cutting it off and saying, no, we're not closing down. So she's kind of, you know, she's trying to be DeSantis at his own game here and say, no, 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 no. We're not even playing this game. It's a whole different world now, and we are not going to limit the liberty of our citizens because of it. So the right's definitely going to love it. The left is going to probably call her uh, incautious. No, she doesn't care about human lives. That probably will be a talking point or at least a, a line of attack that will be used against her. I haven't seen any out there yet. Also, she is a Republican governor of a smaller Republican state, so it might not get too much coverage and be picked up, but it definitely is something that needs to be talked about because maybe these policies could be implemented other places, and the fact that she is in such a strong R state, she can kind of lead on these policies, and then other states where there are Republicans who are afraid they may not get elected in their next gubernatorial election can say, hey, look at what Sanders did. We have proven evidence that it actually works, and then they can implement it for themselves. So, yeah, we'll see going forward. This may be exactly what some RNC governors need in order to justify their case. And it's interesting to have a really, really strong first move from Arkansas or Arkansas of all places. It's interesting to say the least. The interesting part about the legislation, though, is that she actually wanted to block the release of some public records related to her whereabouts and where she travels and so on and so forth, claiming that it actually puts her family at risk, which I think there's a little bit to that, which if somebody really doesn't like her and they have public records indicating where she has been in the past, maybe they could discern some sort of pattern or maybe they could find out how the team puts together their security for different events and maybe it could put her family at risk. But also there's another legislator who says, quote, to claim that the Freedom of Information Act needs to be changed to keep her safe is ludicrous and a brazen lie from a skilled politician who knows she's been caught. The question now is simple. What is she hiding? End quote. I don't necessarily agree with how you know sensational that comment is, but yeah, I mean, you are a governor. You take on that risk when you get into that office. So to try to hide your whereabouts or to try to limit the information that gets out there. No, you have to be as transparent as possible. You, Like I said, you are fully aware of the risk that brings on to yourself and your family. We've seen lots of presidents assassinated. We've seen lots of attempts on presidents. We've seen attempts on other political figures. We, I'm sorry, but if you go into those positions and you go into the public eye, there's going to be more scrutiny and there's going to be more risk involved. So I think it's probably not a good thing to limit the amount of information that people can get about their governor, even if it is to protect them. I think at the end of the day, limiting the information that the people can get, it, it's just going to be a problem long term and it opens and sets a very, very dangerous precedent going forward, at least in my opinion. All right, so let's jump to our final article, which is our daily delight. This one comes from Times Now. Cat's theory, no photo message goes viral. So, yeah, there's, there's a cat. And some people, you know, don't like being f- photographed whatsoever. Well, this cat has that exact same sentiment. Quote, a hilarious video of a cat has become a big hit on Reddit, making people burst into laughter. 
and and I'm not quoting anymore. Honestly, fiery doesn't even begin to describe it. This cat is you know on top of it, really angry. Like it reminds me of some of my cousins back in the day who were like, no, 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 no don't record me right now. Don't take a photo of me. Quote, the video captures the cat's comical reaction when its owner tries to take a picture of it. The caption for the video says, please don't take picture. So if you want to see any of the cute videos from this one or if you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine. And the Twitter handle at your daily flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say stay safe, don't die.